Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the latest installment of the Baked and Awake Show, where we get together, usually once a week, and chop it up about all things cannabis here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We open most episodes with some smoking and conversation about everybody's favorite semi-illicit houseplant. Once we're good and stony, we'll turn things towards interesting stories, mysteries, and popular, unpopular, and sometimes obscure conspiracy theories. It's a grand old time, well suited to the enjoyment of free-thinking adults who are fully expecting some light cannabis use for science during the show. Don't mind the occasional bit of colorful language. I'm your host, Steve Kaminsky, and I'm here to try to do my best to bring you something new and interesting about cannabis, and a toothsome conspiracy topic of some sort every week. I'll endeavor to do this with a minimum of my own personal bias, the better to allow you, the listeners, to form your own conclusions. And now... Whether a first-time listener or returning friend, please get comfortable with your favorite strain or whatever's nearest to hand, and enjoy. All right, we're going to start out this evening with a events calendar slash micro-report about Hemp Fest 2017, uh, which just finished this past uh, weekend here in Seattle. And uh, didn't make it out on Friday afternoon uh, like I wanted to. Uh, made it out, however, uh, later in the weekend. Went, in fact, on Sunday. Uh, turned out to be a great time to go as a matter of fact uh for me this year uh first off downtown seattle sunday free parking on the streets uh which was great uh and uh i went ahead and brought the whole family so that was really fun uh we more or less ate our way through that uh bad boy and uh the kids uh I've mentioned my wife Nicole before and that we have two young boys. We have Kenneth, uh, who's five years old, and uh, young Royce, uh, who is uh, our uh, young son of a year and a half. So uh, we didn't bring, we did bring an umbrella stroller, and that's about it. Not a whole lot of extra supplies and of course we didn't need them there are tons of food trucks and things down there at Hempfest. it's more or less um you know music festival crafts uh you know fair uh, extraordinaire um merch from all sorts of uh industry uh folks uh, at every different angle that you can think of from you know, papers people to um, choppers and grinders and, you know, folks who sell an assortment of all your, uh, you know, smoking needs. Tons of glass obviously goes without saying. I don't know how many people I saw walking around with 
giant three foot, four foot long. I mean, they looked like they were carrying large babies wrapped in, in paper and foam and tape and, you know, gently cradling them, uh, out of the, out of the, um, park, uh, and, or laying with them on the grass and, and sessioning with their, uh, travel pieces that they had brought with them for the day. Um, you know, there was tons of, uh, public smoking on display and that was great. Of course, it's always fun to feel, uh, you know, normalized doing that in public. And it was really cool to bring, uh, my wife, Nicole along and share that with her. Cause we hadn't been to Hempfest together before, um, you know, and, and Nicole hasn't seen a lot of, uh, you know, folks doing it, uh, aside from me and my friends, you know, and, and, and our friends, you know, in the extended circle over the years in very comfortable, intimate settings, you know, and here we were out with a bunch of, uh, you know, really diverse folks, you know, of all ages, a lot of whom had their families with them of all, of all, uh, sizes, um, you know, having a grand old time, being cool, uh, kids being normal and, uh, and having fun themselves. And, uh, you know, really, uh, my boys have seen me, uh, you know, partake here and there. And I think it's, there's nothing wrong with that. We, we can crack a beer in front of the kids. I don't see why I wouldn't puff on a joint out in the backyard while I'm watering the garden you know doing what i may be doing and and if they happen to see that's what i'm doing while they're playing on the other side of the yard you know nobody's uh nobody's catching a contact and uh you know i'm not off hiding in a woodshed um being a weirdo uh you know just to uh take a puff and enjoy my lifestyle so uh but you know the park the you know thousands of people around us music speakers you know all these booths all these uh uh food trucks and and stands uh you know what did we what did we get down on we started out with ice cream uh, i think it was ben and jerry's right off the top a couple ice cream cones uh uh soon after that because it was hot you know another hot sunny day so that which was great um you know, uh, kind of hazy at first, but it really did clear out the second part of the day. And, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, so good ice cream weather. Um, soon after that, uh, we found a, uh, Hawaiian shaved ice. Uh, my, uh, son Kenny finally found his cotton candy that we were looking for for the longest time. Oh, I want to say, yeah, we found some humbau that were delicious, some pork bao, uh, you know, the steamed uh, rolls that are filled with a hot, delicious barbecue pork. I want to say it's, you know, like a, a Chinese uh, favorite, uh, super, super tasty. They were like freaking two for five bucks or something from from one spot. So that was cool and affordable um, and just yummy and and. Uh, yeah, uh, I think we got a couple other things, too, there before we were through. But, um, you know, I picked up a new uh, grinder from Futurola, like a larger kind of ergo, sort of semi-cheapy one, but that felt nice, and I liked it. I, I couldn't say no. I copped that, and, you know, I don't need a lot else in terms of uh, bits and pieces. And, in fact, that, you know, that'll make my third grinder that I've got for flour, but, uh, 
whatever, you know, get a little souvenir from Hempfest when you go to Hempfest. Uh, but uh, other highlights for us, really uh, the coolest thing that probably happened at Hempfest was the fact that, uh, you know, here I am, so-called, uh, you know, cannabis guy, uh, you know, lifelong stoner, know all these uh, friends who, you know, smoke and, you know, we lived here in Seattle for ages, uh, you know, and uh, go down to Hempfest. And sure, maybe it's Sunday afternoon, but whatever. Uh, saw precisely one person all day that I recognized and didn't even talk to him until we were out of the out of the park and heading back to the car and saw him and his family sitting down, uh, you know, having a bite to eat at a local restaurant uh, after the fact. Um, but uh, I, I want to say Nicole ran into four or five different uh She's a she's a high school math teacher in Bellevue School District, uh, folks. She's a really talented lady and makes a, a big difference in a lot of kids' lives uh, all the time. And, you know, teaching algebra and geometry, uh, you know, super applicable, incredible, uh, you know, uh, obviously amongst the most relevant things uh, kids do learn in, in their uh, public education. Uh you know, uh, Nicole, uh, you know, forms really great bonds with these kids. And, uh, here she is out having fun with the family and kid after kid. And I say kid, and you know, these kids are high school students and some of them are graduated who are, you know, remembering her from their time at school. So, you know, forgive me, uh, guys, any of you who may, uh, ever hear this uh, program later on down the down the line don't you know I call everybody kids uh, that I and probably a lot of folks who I shouldn't so uh, but uh, you know a few of these uh, uh, youngsters were definitely you know coming back to school in the fall and you know I didn't catch anybody's names um, I think they loved seeing her out there I think she loved seeing uh, them and uh, you know again just uh they call it Hempfest. It's a it's a great uh, opportunity to celebrate cannabis lifestyle, but also you know, and as much as a, of a highlight as that was uh, for us, you know, uh, seeing friendly faces uh, in unexpected places, uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, takeaways probably uh, for us. Well, you know, the to sum up sort of the visit and what I did hear uh, of the speakers uh, who still were going hard in the paint on Sunday, bringing the message of uh, cannabis advocacy, um, you know, giving you the ultra Cliff's Notes version of this is basically, you know, uh, our our sort of uh, standard that still needs to be borne by Hempfest and other advocates for cannabis is, you know, um, uh, uh, not only legalizing here in Washington State, home grow here in Washington, and public and social smoking here in Washington, uh, more progressive voters are needed here in Washington State and nationwide, um, you know, advocacy needs to be made for uh, continued uh, uh, reduction for and or um, commutation of sentences for nonviolent drug offenders, particularly uh, cannabis offenders uh, who uh, may be in the system in some cases for, you know, uh, years, decades of their lives uh, for something that, you know, many of us uh, enjoy going to 
you know, one of hundreds of local stores in in the area and uh, purchasing and enjoying as responsible adults uh, today, um, thanks to, you know, the hard work of organizations like HempFest and others and, and many, many advocates across uh, the, the United States uh, who have, you know, helped birth the uh, medical markets and the and the legal markets that we are currently uh, exploring together now. So, uh, Hempfest did uh, say repeatedly that they were hurting for funding. Um, you know, we put what we could in the box on our way uh, out the door and tried to support what, as we could. Uh, you know, while we were in uh, at the event, um, obviously, you know. Uh, visiting different vendors and you know I didn't do what I might have done in other years in terms of trying to buy t-shirts and maybe buying a big fancy piece of some kind um, you know because I just don't need it as much as I did uh, a while ago and you know I'm pretty dialed in on that front and lord knows I probably shouldn't pay for a t-shirt if I don't have to right t-shirts are free everybody knows that so um, yeah so uh, I've got links in the show notes here uh, for Hempfest and, uh, you know, how to uh, go straight to their, uh, you know, support page and, and donate uh, to help them continue to bring their message to the world and uh, do what uh, we can uh, to help keep them going strong and keep an event like Hempfest happening. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, that was about it for Hempfest. I might even post a picture or two of us from the weekend there as well. There's a couple. We'll see how they came out. Uh, All right. Uh, So, once again, how the heck am I doing this? I picked a strain of the week that I'm not actually smoking today uh, at all. Uh, But let's... Let's fuck around and smoke a joint while we talk about strain of the week um and so to that to give it any credit at all we've got a really um great little five pack of uh pre-roll cones from rocketcones.com that i'm smoking today and it's romulan good old romulan and indica indicas are a favorite of mine as some of you may know um but yeah, so and we'll talk about we'll we'll visit Romulan as a strain of the week sometime soon because it's a great strain and I remember being pretty impressed with it when I first came across with it for sure for sure. Um, okay, so yeah, uh, but I did pick a cool strain of the week that I am excited to tell you about that most everybody's uh, heard of and is probably familiar with. Uh, by now, and uh, this is another really perennial Northwest favorite uh, Dutch treat. Yes, a good old Dutch treat. So, lighten this joint. Okay, so. Looked around, found a couple of um, descriptions, and maybe there's a better one somewhere, but the best one that I found came from WikiLeaf. 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 And I'm going to go to the full 
description here and literally read it from these guys and i'm going to put an excerpt of it in the show notes and a link to it in the show notes but i do like their description all right so and all right yeah dutch treat the common practice of splitting a bill after a date isn't nearly as fun as the cannabis strain of the same name Dutch Treat, also known as Dutch Crunch, never heard it called Dutch Crunch, personally, uh, is an indica-heavy hybrid that was originally cultivated in the Pacific Northwest, but is now very popular in Amsterdam. So, there you go. I know, I thought that shit came from Amsterdam. I mean, right? Dutch Treat? Anyway, or no, I mean, I might have told, I, I, I could have told somebody sometime that that shit came from Amsterdam, for all I know. But it didn't. Or at least, we don't think so. Anyway. With minimal CBD around 1% and THC between 15 and 30%, this is a potent strain that offers some physical benefits alongside its psychoactivity. A good option for nighttime socializing or introspection, Dutch Treat's potency earned it third best sativa in the 2012 Southern California Cannabis Cup. Now, side note, Steve, side note here. We just read a paragraph in an article where they first characterized the strain as indica heavy hybrid and then tell us that it won the third best sativa in 2012 in the Southern California Cannabis Cup. So, what the fuck? I don't know, but I will say that we will talk about the indica versus sativa dichotomy debate uh, confusion all of that at some point soon uh not right now but i i find it intriguing personally um always so i think i mentioned in the last episode when talking about gorilla glue uh okay so there is no clear provenance on the lineage of Dutch Treat. However, many sources point to Jordan of the Islands, an experienced breeder from Vancouver Island, as the point of origin. Jordan of the Islands grows several staple strains, as well as innovative crossbreeds that retail at dispensaries throughout the Vancouver area. So here, I should have done that next step for us and i will for the show notes i'll try to find if jordan of the islands these days has his own page website some some of his own info and maybe specifically about dutch treats so and if so i'll find it i'll add the link all right um anyway popular staple strains northern lights parentheses, another heavy indica with an earthy flavor profile, and haze, parentheses, a bold sativa with similarly wispy buds, 
have been suggested as parents of Dutch treat, but without advanced genetic testing, we can't know for sure how Dutch treat came to be. Well, do the testing. Somebody do the testing. Somebody's probably done the testing. Anyway. Be interesting. Alright, so they go on to say, despite its mysterious genetics, Dutch treat has a clear bag appeal that has made it attractive for innovative crossbreeding. One phenotype of the strain, Dutch treat number five, has been used to create several other popular strains. Combined with a Hawaiian sativa land race, it's yielding high definition. Combined with super silver haze, it has produced Dutch treat haze. And when crossed with electric haze, it's given us electric treat. Despite its indica dominance, Dutch treats buds are more sativa in appearance. They're tapered and conical rather than round, and their leaves are more wispy and soft than densely packed. The leaves themselves are a dark green with golden and yellow pistils underneath, a thick coating of trichomes, Because of their high resin content and loose bud structure, buds of Dutch treat may prove difficult to break apart for a pipe or a joint if you're not using a grinder. I don't know about that. I've, I've never had a problem. I don't think I... You know, this is, it's really detailed review. It's really fun. Um, the aroma of this strain, while pleasant, isn't particularly memorable or pungent. Cured buds have a muted woodsy smell of cedar and pine, accented by some nonspecific citrus sweetness. The smoke is surprisingly smooth and has the taste of herbs and more pine. I can I can more or less agree with that. I don't remember Dutch Treat ever being one of the ones that just really hits you uh, in the old kisser uh, with its bouquet. It's, you know, pleasant and it smells dank, but it's not, it's not, you know, cracking. It's not, you know, jumping off with any super unique... tone like some may bring to the table. I don't know. For me. Uh, for consumers who would rather not handle implements like joints, pipes, or vaporizers, blah, blah, blah. So now they're, you know, shilling a, a pen and some oil here. Which, sure, you know, Dutch treat, pen, and a cartridge. So, yeah, it goes on. It's a little longer. We're not going to read the whole thing. Highest tested on WikiLeaf here. They're saying they hit 30% somewhere. Somebody did with Dutch Treat. Which is, you know, twice your average. You know, 12 to 15%, you see. So yeah, strain of the week, Dutch treat. Um, yeah, we will definitely start smoking the strain of the week that we're smoking. So it may not be Romulan next week, but that's what we'll do. We'll bring that in line together, which of course is a goal. 
and and probably has been but I'm not gonna let what I have here in the house stop me from covering a strain that I think is interesting and I picked Dutch treat because Dutch treat is for all that a perennial high performing great classic Northwest uh, example of just you know uh, if 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 that's our Reggie I'll take that Reggie any day you know what I mean and I'll say bless up for this because this is not bad at all this is in fact just fine and I'm sure anybody who's ever had some good Dutch treat has probably enjoyed it quite a bit maybe even really enjoys it to the point where it holds a special place uh, for them um, and uh, please tell me if it does for you because uh, I think it's a good one so if uh, if the purported posited you know lineage uh, of a potential northern lights haze cross uh, has any veracity that of course is good stock so all right um yeah all right we are going to jump into the hemp history timeline we are briefly picking back up at 1500 ce i spent a few minutes in there but i'm going to tease our uh conspiracy topic our baked our awake topic that is uh and tell you that it is a ufo story and uh you know don't turn that button don't press the pause button don't press the back button we're gonna we're gonna talk ufos it'll be fun uh it's an old one it's uh from 1947 the same year as the roswell crash and it happened right here in the pacific northwest uh it's called the maury island incident and uh it's I think it's a weird one. It's an interesting one. And, uh, of course, it has no answer. We have no resolution to this day what really went down. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about that here uh, in just a little while. And uh, I've got a whole bunch of links and resources to check out uh, after you listen to my spiel about it, which will be, you know, the uh, light version or jumping off point uh, for you on the Maury Island incident. Um, but yeah, so look forward to that in just a few. So, it, yes, right into our history of hemp timeline. Pick them back up right where we left off. The last entry that we talked about, we were in 1484 CE, the Common Era where persecution of witches began in Europe. And cannabis was demonized once again as it was an essential part of their witchcraft. In 1526, Baburnama, first emperor and founder of Mughal Empire, learned of hashish in Afghanistan. In 1532, French physician Rebellas Gargantua and Pantagruel mentions marijuana's medicinal effects 
Now I think we are still recapping here. And by the way, for those of you just coming in this week and who are interested as you go back and listen to episode two and episode one, we began with some background on a great PDF document that we are going through in a serialized fashion, which chronicles the history of hemp, its cultivation, the use of hemp and cannabis alongside humans as we progressed in society and civilization um, on through the modern era. And as it gets closer to the modern era, we will see it becomes more and more interesting as it becomes more and more relevant to the widespread large-scale prohibition of cannabis that most folks deal with today. And so, here we are. Back on the timeline. At 1533, King Henry VIII fines farmers if they do not raise hemp for industrial use. Oh yeah. Yeah, we covered a little bit of this actually. Explorers find 1545 wild hemp. Once again, yeah, in North America. So we talked about that. Did we talk about the Angolan slaves bringing cannabis with them to the sugar plantations of southeastern, northeastern Brazil? They were permitted to plant their cannabis between rows of cane and to smoke it between harvests, yes. The epic poem, Benku Bode, by the poet Muhammad Ibn Suleiman Furuli of Baghdad. In 1550, yep, dealt with allegorically the dialectical battle between wine and hashish. And you know what? I'm going to subject you guys to uh, these last few lines of this as we get caught up because most of you aren't going to make it back to the beginning. Episode 2 and Episode 1. You can prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. Go back to episode two and episode one and comment and say you made it. So there. You can do it if you want. There's not too much more. In 1578, China's Li Shishen writes of the antibiotic and anti-emetic effects of marijuana. In 1600, England begins to import hemp from Russia. 1606 to 1632, French and British cultivate cannabis for hemp at their colonies in Port Royal. 1606, Virginia, 1611, and Plymouth, 1632. Probably Plymouth in North America. Sixteen sixteen, Jamestown settlers begin growing the hemp plant. <laughs> begin growing the hemp plant for its unusually strong fiber and used it to make rope sails and clothing. 1616 to 1654, Nicholas Culpepper listed a variety of medical uses of the common European hemp, cannabis sativa, including anti-inflammatory, analgesic, and antiparasitic activity. Sixteen twenty one, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy suggests marijuana may treat depression. In 1631, 
hemp is used as legal tender throughout the American colonies. From 1600 to 1700, the use of hashish, alcohol, and opium spreads among the population of occupied Constantinople. Hashish becomes a major trade item between Central Asia and South Asia. In the 1700s, farmers are required by law to grow hemp in Virginia and other colonies. In 1753, Linnaeus classifies cannabis sativa. I wonder if Linnaeus is the person after whom Delineate um, is named. I am not looking that up right now because it'll probably crash this Chromebook, so let's not even try it. Uh, we'll look that up and Maybe answer that for ourselves later. That'd be interesting to know. In 1762, in the U.S., the state of Virginia rewarded farmers with bounties for hemp culture and remanufacture and imposed penalties upon those who did not produce it. George Washington grew hemp for fiber and recreational use. And Thomas Jefferson acquired the first American patent for his hemp break. Wow. A device used to separate the hemp stalk into usable herds and fiber with greater speed than the redding of past. Without hemp, America could not have successfully waged the revolution, and for the next 150 years, hemp enjoyed the position as America's top cash crop. Take that. In 1764, medical marijuana appears in the New England Dispensatory. In 1776, Kentucky begins growing hemp. 1776, the Declaration of Independence was drafted on hemp paper. In 1783, cannabis was reclassified into two main species, sativa and indica, by French naturalist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. That's 1783. In 1794, medical marijuana appears in the Edinburgh New Dispensary. 1797, the USS Constitution is outfitted with 60 tons of hemp sails and rigging. In 1798, Napoleon discovers that much of the Egyptian lower class habitually uses hashish. Soldiers returning to France bring the tradition with them, and he declares a total prohibition. So I think there's a a bit of a side story or a, a bigger story there uh, whereby some folks, you know, put it that the total prohibition against hashish made it extremely easy for Napoleon, who was colonizing parts of northern Africa, including Egypt, uh, you know, to 
criminalize virtually anyone in the colony if they so chose because of this cultural tendency to use the plant. So this is something that will come up later as we continue to talk about the reasons why cannabis may be prohibited at certain times here on the timeline, but there is 1798 Napoleon prohibiting cannabis use in Egypt, and I do not know if he prohibited use of cannabis hashish back home in France at all at the same time. All right, and that brings us to 1800, where we'll stop on the timeline for tonight and uh, we are going to pause for the briefest of moments before we dive back in on our next topic. Alright, welcome back. Uh, feels good, took a quick break there, which uh, should be more or less seamless for you guys. Uh, got a snack, answered the call, um, and uh, yeah, you know, finished off that uh, Romulan pre-roll from Rocket Cones, and I think I got that from Urban Buds, I did, down in Tacoma. Uh cool little shop in Tacoma and uh, killer deal on those so that was yeah I mean what is that if you get five half grammers 15 bucks that's two and a half grams for 15 bucks it's not too bad you guys in a pre-roll all done ready to go good smoke gone through like four of them they've all been functional serviceable joints you know, none of them ran weird or anything like that. Um, all right, so we concluded Hemp History Timeline at 1798 and Napoleon banning weed for everyone forever in Egypt uh, is basically what happened there. And As I said, there's probably a much bigger story there, but we'll perhaps touch on that when we come back to the closer to the now parts of the hemp history timeline. Uh, the PDF for that doc will be shared in the show notes as always. Uh, and we'll pick up next week at 1800. Um, before we jump into what I believe is next, and we're coming up on 39, 40 minutes now, 39 minutes right now. Uh, uh, the next uh, thing we are going to talk about is Maury Island uh, that I'm really excited to talk about with you guys. Uh, oh, no, not Maury Island. Ha, ha, ha. Oh, yeah, and then this won't even, yeah, this is not only super fun, and I teased you again with Maury Island coming right back off my break because I'm stony. Uh, and we're going to take a dab uh, uh, together. 
But uh, yeah, our our smoking tip this week is actually going to be a cannabis fun fact. So there, and I mean, yeah, it's one eighteen in the morning, folks. Okay, I'm never up this late. I'm never up this late. But I'm up this late because we're baked in a week, and we're doing this together. And we didn't post it on Friday. It's already one in the morning, so we're going to post it on Saturday, and that's that. And it's going to be fun anyway. And uh, we're going to do a cannabis fun fact tonight and talk about what is a land race strain. And uh, have you ever heard of that term before? Well, I hadn't heard of it until, I don't know, the last few years. Uh, but I did start to hear it, and at first I didn't pay it much mind. Uh, wasn't sure if, you know, it was marketing or what it was. Uh, but really, it it's... Uh, a pretty important thing, and it's um, something that's interesting because it's already come up, as you'll see later on when I get to a list of land race strains uh, here uh, in our uh, conversations uh, so far in the short time that I've been recording these shows. Uh, so, what is a land race strain? Uh, Land race strains are the original native strains of cannabis that have been discovered and documented by growers and you know uh, preservers of of this uh, type of information throughout time. These strains and the genetic purity they represent are the progenitors of all the modern high performance blinging hybridized cannabis that we enjoy today uh, all the stuff that we're going to talk about all the time on this show comes from hybridizing phenotypes versions of these uh short list land race strains that number you know as we'll see like i think less than 20 uh, land races are incredibly important today as growers and scientific and medically minded professionals are becoming hip to cannabis and its myriad applications we might add all over again as our hemp history timeline is dem demonstrating amply and has been people have been knowing that the plant is good not just good, but good for a lot of stuff. A lot of diverse, diverse applications right from the start of that list. It was it was just full of, you know, I mean, people were eating it from the jump. People were using it for textiles from the jump. So there was the industrial sort of side, the super practical side from, from the very start. Um, nutritional and to literally put clothes on your back. Uh, to use it for paper, to, to write on it, to, to use it in remedies of all sorts uh, thousands and thousands of years ago to the extent that they buried it with kings and queens. So, um, getting back to it. Uh, these people, the medical minded professionals I was just mentioning growers testing laboratories etc uh, the field of study they represent want to look directly at the plant as it developed in nature 
especially now when we're buying stuff at the store, trading under names like Bubblegum and Birthday Cake and Luke Skywalker and Ewok and what else? You name it. You name it. Um, developed as look directly at the plant as it developed in nature, free of interbreeding with other strains and in its historically correct region of the world. Although less common today than they once were in terms of distribution, they do pop up for sale now and then, and you may find it fun to try them when you have the chance. Uh, obviously, you can learn a lot more about land races, and I want to. I think we all should. Uh, let's do it together. Let's try to smoke them all like Pokemon. Um, let's try to find land races and smoke them just like those strain hunters and all sorts of uh, folks uh, before us uh, have. Um, and, and the cool part about this for me is I think I could check off one or two of these already. Certainly one. But here's a cool list of land race strains I found at stonecircle.net. And the uh, link will be included, of course. Uh, Thai Sativa from Thailand. Panama Red, Sativa, traced to a small Panamanian island. Hindu Kush, Indica, growing in the Kush mountain range. I think I may have had some Hindu Kush, or, or well, certainly some of the Kushes. Uh, maybe something crossed with the Kush. Uh, Afghani, Indica, growing in the Afghan area. Uh, I think I've smoked Afghani. I know I've smoked the next one, Durban Poison, Sativa, traced back to the Durban area of South Africa. Uh, might have to retire there or something, I don't know. We'll have to see how it looks over there. Punto Rojo, Sativa, that can be found growing in Colombia. Nope, haven't smoked it. Acapulco Gold, Sativa, coming from the Mexico region. Want to say I have, probably haven't, certainly heard of it. Lamb's bread, sativa that origi originated in Jamaica. Uh, Malawi, sativa originating from Malawi, Africa. I haven't smoked lamb's bread. I haven't smoked Malawi, or I haven't smoked them that I know of. Luang Prabang, sativa originating in northern Laos. Um, so there we go. Luang Prabang. That's an interesting one that I certainly have never come across, and maybe most of us haven't. Uh, never heard of it. Uh, super cool. Delta Zonker. Sativa originating in Vietnam. Okay. And then, last on this list, Altai. Sativa originating in southern Russia. Uh, super cool. All right, that's Land Races. Um, all right, I'm going to save you guys a minute or two. And press that pause button on the record one more time. Take a dab, because it's just, I'm throwing my hands in the air. And you already know what TF is going on over here. Uh, yeah. And then come back, and we're going to talk Maury Island. All right, you go ahead and Google it, and then... Before you know it, I'll be right back, and we're going to be talking about it. And you can Google it while I'm talking about it, if that's what you want to do. All right, let's do it. Pause. Dab. Return. Motherfucking UFOs. Here we go. And we're back. 
And we're going to see if we can do this story in the next 13 minutes. Um, we're talking about Maury Island, Washington, which, by the way, for anybody listening to this from around here, I had never heard of Maury Island. It's Vashon. It's on Vashon. It's like a little dogleg peninsula connected to Vashon. So we're talking about Vashon Island, Washington, 1947. Um, but Maury Island for the purposes of our discussion tonight. Uh, so, yeah, this took place over 60 years ago, but it could have occurred yesterday, and it may still be repeated at any time in the future. And by that I mean something like this. What is that something? A report of something strange seem, seen flying overhead on a warm summer night on the water. Dubious evidence on the ground and in poorly developed photos taken on the night in question. Conflicting reports of hoaxing, dogging the tale almost from the start, giving way to no clear resolution to what took place. Though seemingly a mostly harmless UFO sighting tale, the slightest curiosity on the part of would-be investigators quickly uncovers a wealth of unusual information and a string of coincidences that truly leave one wondering what really did happen in late July 1947 in Puget Sound. Now, others have covered this story better and in more depth. Okay, uh, you know, this is a weed podcast where we fuck around and talk conspiracies after we smoke balls. But, you know, I'll do some research and point us at places where we can continue to do some research. And maybe in time we'll continue to get better at this. And, uh, you know, we put this one right at the top of the list of ones to come back and revisit later um, and treat better. But, <clears throat> you know... We're having fun tonight with the highlights. I strongly encourage you guys to go and, you know, if your curiosity has peaked, investigate this further. There's links in the show notes. I'm working heavily off of podcasts I've listened to, which some of which I'll include here. Um, internet searches on this and uh, a really cool document called the Agent Wilcox Memorandum, which is an FBI uh, agent's document. Uh, uh, memo that he evidently shared in his chain of command uh, in the same year uh, that this occurred later in the same summer uh, and this is like the initial kind of report heavily redacted interestingly heavily redacted and hard to read even in the parts where it's not redacted um, in the weird bureaucratic speak that's in it and this is a Freedom of Information Act document that they obtained a few years ago um, and that subsequently was used as like the basis for a movie that was made that I may yet purchase or rent uh, to watch. Uh, but interesting stuff. Um, so here we go. Uh, yeah, investigate on your own after hearing this. The Maury Island incident took place in western Washington in early June from what the documents seem to indicate, uh, <laughs> of 1947. 
um, later reported in the uh, Agent Wilcox memorandum on August 1st, I believe, 1947. Um, and uh, this is just one month before the famous Roswell crash, an event which soon became vastly more well-known than the mysterious contested events of June of that same year in Washington State. On the evening in question, Marine salvage log hunter Harold Dahl reported six, quote, flying donuts overhead as he and his crew for the evening worked the boat in Puget Sound. And uh, so I will let you know that uh, they, the, there was a industry at the time and maybe persists to this day. I do not know, but uh, the logging was such at the time that trees were being floated, uh, you know, downriver and through sections of the sound, some of which would occasionally, uh, you know, uh, logs would break free from the, you know, rafts and flotillas that they were part of, um, break loose, couldn't be recovered at the time by the crews who were heading, you know, to the next processing uh, step in, in the process for the um, mills. And these privateer outfits would go and uh, try to find these logs that were stamped with serial numbers and recover them for those mills. So that's what these guys were doing. They would recover them for money and, uh, you know, on, on tugs or small boats, maybe, you know, similar to fishing boats of some kind, and uh, that uh, then would, you know, bring them to the respective companies uh, that the logs were uh, lost from and recover the deposit on those logs. So that's why they were out on the water this night and saw flying donuts. It was him, uh, uh, Harold Dahl, his son, uh, maybe one other crew member, uh, and, and as we'll hear, his son's dog was on the boat that night. Uh, one of the craft, the men reported, appeared to be failing, quote, unquote, and was dropping chunks of molten debris from itself as it approached, losing altitude rapidly. It seems it may have crashed entirely. Um, and I didn't see that in the... Wilcox memorandum, uh, but I probably didn't read it perfectly. And, you know, it's in the show notes, so you can have a lot of fun with that doc, reading that doc, and as I have. And we'll go to it and read a couple sections of it here in a bit. But uh, some of the molten debris rained down upon the boat and the crew before they could attempt to evade the strange aircraft, injuring one man and reportedly causing the death of the dog. So that was, yeah, Dahl's son's dog is dead from molten slag that fell off of this ship, which may have crashed into the water, did crash into the water or the ground. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, because then it was recovered somehow by the other five craft. So that at this time, the five fully functional craft were seen to circle the damaged one and by some unknown means were able to, quote, jumpstart it, at which point they rose as a group to a higher altitude and quickly sped away. Now, I think I made a note to myself that it was on uh, page four of the doc, 
So, let's peek at the Wilcox memo and go to page four. Okay, five and four. And let's see, there we go. Yeah, so there. All right, so I'm in the document here, and it just took a moment. It's basically like looking at an old photocopy, so it's also in a really antiquated font. But, you know, it's fine. It's pretty readable, other than the weirdness of the manner of speech and the way stuff is broken up, interestingly, with the redactions. Um, so, you know, towards the top of page four of the of the 16 page PDF um, which is like a 14 page typewritten report from the time from an FBI agent uh, in August of 47 um, we get his name up top uh, and I think I have it in the notes um, but it's redacted here interesting it's funny the following investigation was conducted by a special agent redacted at Tacoma, Washington on August 6th, 7th, 1947. Redacted, redacted Tacoma, Washington, advised that in the early part of June 1947, he was requested by the Seattle Post-Intelligencer to check on a story which he was informed had been obtained from the blank at Harper, Washington. The story was supposed to have originated with Redacted, Redacted, stated that the story was to the effect that blank, while patrolling in his boat, that's Dahl, near Maury Island, saw five or six flying discs, one of which fluttered toward the ground and finally disintegrated. Fragments of the disc were reported to have showered down on the boat of blank doll causing some damage and killing his dog blank doll stated that he went to the home long blank Tacoma Washington to check with him on the flying disc story now this is probably Chrisman his boss he stated that as best he could recall, this was just a few days after the first flying disc stories had appeared in the paper and was on a Sunday morning. He believed it was the early part of June. He stated that Blank took him in the kitchen and proceeded to talk about this flying disc story in low, muffled tones. He stated that Blank acted rather suspicious and that shortly his wife came into the kitchen and was in a considerable rage, telling blank doll to admit the entire story it was a plain fantasy which he had dreamed up he stated that after his wife told doll to admit blank it was still redacted to admit the entire story was false that blank doll then admitted that there was nothing whatever to the story and it was an entire hoax blank 
stated that in the view of the enraged condition of blank doll's wife, he immediately left. Oh, so blank, I assume, again, is Chisholm Chrisman. Chrisman. Uh, his boss, the owner of the boat. Um, stated that in view of the arranged condition of Doll's wife, blank Doll's wife, he immediately left and reported